Good morning. Good morning. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Christian. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. I have the opportunity to open up God's word with you this morning. Hey, um, guys in the back, would you mind maybe turning these lights down just a tad and the house lights up? I feel like I'm alone in here right now. Can't see anybody. There y'all are. Hi. Now I can say good morning. I am excited to get to open up God's Word with you. you might, hopefully you had a chance to grab communion elements when you walked in. If not, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, the ushers can uh, bring you a couple. Um, Cole might have mentioned this before, but if you have a gluten intolerance, we do have gluten-free ones. They're about four times as expensive as these ones. So we have them in a little basket in the back by the sound booth. If you need one, you can go grab one. You'll know it's gluten-free if it's a little tiny square. Those are gluten-free ones. But we'll be taking communion together as a church family at the end. So if you have that, just hang on to that. Um, but for now, we are continuing this morning our series through the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 16. We'll be diving into chapter 17 this morning, but what I want to do together is kind of start out first by recapping some of what Todd took us through last Sunday because our passage this morning is, is really closely connected to it. We are at a very pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry in which he is revealing to his disciples more about what his mission as Messiah, as the, the promised king from the line of David, who will rule forever, what his mission is going to look like. He's revealed more about the path he's going to take, the path that he's calling them to follow. And as we saw last week, it's not at all what the disciples or anyone was anticipating, which is why Jesus waits till this almost midpoint, more, more than midpoint in his ministry to let them in on where, what he is about to do at the point where they are convinced that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. So again, if you have your Bibles open, what I want to do is kind of look back through the passage and make a couple comments that we looked at last week that will set us up for the passage we're going to dive into this morning. Because in many ways, I do this both to jog our memories. It's been a week since we were together. And I don't know about you, I don't remember most conversations I had a week ago. But sometimes with a little help, my wife can say, do you remember we already talked about that? And I'm like, oh yeah, we did talk about that, right? So starting in verse 13 of chapter 16, remember Jesus is with his disciples. He's taken them off into this more Gentile region. And he's asking them, who do people say that I am? He uses this, his favorite title for himself, the son of man. We'll talk about that more in a second as well. But the people say, some say you're John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then he looks at his 12 and he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter makes that famous confession you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. You didn't figure this out for yourself. My father revealed this to you. And then he goes on and he says, I say that you are not just Simon, you are Peter, this rock who will play a foundational role in the, the church that I'm going to build. You're right, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the son of the living God. But don't tell anybody. Well, why? Well, look at the very next verse, verse 21. Because from that time and for the first time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And you could have heard a pin drop. What? Okay, this is the path that you're going to take, Jesus? The Messiah, the promised king we've been waiting for, that God talked about who would rule over all nations forever. You're going to suffer and die and then rise again. We can't even wrap our minds around any of that right now. And that's why Jesus says, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ, because the path I'm going to take is not what they're expecting. It's not what you're expecting. And they will not react any better to this news than Peter does, right? Never, Lord. Far be it from you, verse 22. This shall never happen to you. And then look at what Jesus says to Peter. Talk about whiplash. In the same conversation, he goes from, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, to get behind me, Satan, adversary, opponent. You are a hindrance to me a stumbling block. 
You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. You're an obstacle in the way that my father has called me to walk, and you need to get out of my way, Peter, or actually more specifically, you need to get in line behind me. Because the very path that I am going to walk is the path that I'm calling you and anyone who would come after me to walk, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow me. It's interesting. Back in verse 21, Jesus said that he would be killed. But here in verse 24 is where he specifies the manner of death that he's going to die. And he does it by saying, here's what I want you to follow me in, to take up your cross, indicating the path ahead for him would lead ultimately to crucifixion. The most devilishly ingenious way the Romans had devised to execute people as a way to totally humiliate and subjugate them. We will strip you naked, hang you onto a cross that will nail you to you by your hands and feet and leave you there exposed to the shame of people, to the elements, until you run out of the strength to push yourself up to get another breath and basically asphyxiate from your own collarbones. That's the path I'm going as Israel's Messiah. And if anyone would come after me, you need to follow me on this same path. Not necessarily meaning that everyone will face the same mode of death that Jesus did, but he is not setting them up for an easy life, is he? He is not setting anyone up for an easy life. And yet he says, this is the way to find life. If you try to build your life or hold on to your life in any other way, it will slip through your grasp. You will lose it. You could gain everything that this world has to offer and forfeit your very soul. And even if you refuse to follow me on this path through suffering to glory, you will still need to face Jesus one day. Look at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with the glory of the Father, with the angels. And then he will repay to each person according to what he's done. Now here's my point in kind of recapping all that. I think right here in verse 27, this is probably the one thing that Jesus said that made sense to the disciples in that moment. Okay, this idea of Messiah coming with the glory of God and the kingdom of God to rule and to bring judgment, that's what we've been expecting. That sounds like what we've been expecting. But what's all this other stuff about suffering and dying and rising again and us taking up crosses to follow you? You mean, I know many of us, maybe you've grown up with this story of Jesus. And as far as you can remember, you've known that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. But remember here at this moment in this passage here in Matthew 16, this is the first time that anyone has heard this, that this is the path that Jesus is going to walk. I am the Messiah. I'm going to suffer and die and rise again, and you're coming with me. And to just stop for a moment and try to realize how confounding this would have been for the disciples. They expected glory would come from following Jesus. And Jesus says, no, first comes the cross for him and in some way for them as well. But again, look there at the end of verse 28. Do you notice how Jesus said that some of them would catch a glimpse of Jesus's glory before they tasted or experienced death. They would see the son of man coming in his kingdom. That phrase there, the idea of the Son of Man receiving a kingdom, it's meant to hearken us back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel is given this vision of this one like a Son of Man who was brought into God's presence with the clouds of heaven. Keep that up, that idea of the clouds in mind. It'll come importantly in what we see in chapter 17. But he comes before God and he is given dominion and glory and a kingdom, an everlasting dominion, a kingdom that will not be destroyed. And what Jesus again is saying in verse 28 of Matthew 16, some of you will not taste death before you see a glimpse of that. When did they see that? When did some of those who were with Jesus that day catch a glimpse of this scene right here? Well, I would say as the story progresses through the rest of the Gospels and Acts, 
we see that there's not just one glimpse of this, there's many. There's a glimpse of the glory of Jesus that the disciples get when they see Jesus raised from the dead, right? When they see him ascend with the cloud back up into heaven. We read like in the book of Acts, Stephen, one of the followers of Jesus, right before he is stoned to death for his faith in Jesus, he's given this vision of Jesus standing in glory at the right hand of God. Paul himself, who first was a persecutor of the church, gets interrupted majorly by Jesus on the road to Damascus with a vision of Jesus' glory that blinds him. Even during Jesus' trial before he died, he looked at the chief priests and he said, I am the Christ, I am the Son of the Blessed One, and you will see the Son of Man coming in the glory of his kingdom. But for the chief priests, that was not a sign of deliverance, but of doom. You have set yourself against me, but you'll see. You'll see. And in other words, I say all that to say this. What Jesus is saying there in verse 28, that some will catch a glimpse. There are many glimpses that are given. This idea of glimpses of the glory of Jesus' kingdom. Think about it almost like a rock that you skip across the surface of a lake. It goes ding, 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 until finally splash. There's a whole series of glimpses of the glory of Jesus that the followers of Jesus get to see. But the first ripple, the first bounce of that rock across the water happens immediately after, about six days after. Look at chapter 17. Verse 1. Let me read through these 13 verses that our main focus for today, and then we'll dive into it together. And after six days of that conversation there in chapter 16, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, transformed before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking to them when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. Would you pray with me for a moment? Father, there is glory, there is mystery, there is wonder in this passage can't imagine what it would have been like to be there on that mountain with Peter and James and John, to see your son's glory, to hear your voice. But you've given us this in your word that it might have a, a similar effect in our lives that it did for those three men that day. That beholding your glory, we might trust your son and follow him even in the midst of difficulty to a glory that's to come. So would you again Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you change and transform us through your word? I ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Here's the main point. Have I been meditating on this story of Jesus' transfiguration and looking at it in light of everything we just looked at from chapter 16? Here's the main point that stands out to me. What I see in this whole vision, this whole scene is an incredibly kind God. 
who recognizes how confusing everything that Jesus has just said to the disciples is. And so he meets them in the midst of their confusion about Jesus's mission by showing them Jesus's glory. Let me show you who my son is so that you might trust him and listen to him. It's very clear in the account that Peter and James and John, they don't just stumble upon this scene. They're not just like unintended bystanders. They are the intended audience. This whole scene with Moses and Elijah and Jesus's glory and the cloud and all of that is for them. Look again, just look at these details, right? Verse two, Jesus was transfigured before them, before Peter and James and John. Moses and Elijah show up appearing to them. A dark, uh, just this bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice spoke to, from the cloud directly to them. I don't think God did this just to impress the disciples or to intimidate them. Again, I think this is such a kind thing for God to do at this important juncture in their discipleship with Jesus. When he's made clear to them the path that he's going to walk towards suffering and death and resurrection and made clear to them that if any of them, if any of us want to follow him, we should expect to follow a similar path. He knows they're trying to wrap their minds around this, this idea that this truly is the way that leads to life. That when Jesus said back in Matthew 7 that there is one narrow, difficult path that leads to life in contrast to a wide, broad, easy path that leads to destruction, this is what he was talking about. And so the kindness of God to give them a bigger view of Jesus than anything they've seen before at this moment of confusion for them, I think that is so kind. Have you experienced that? If you're a follower of Jesus in here, have you experienced something to what I think the disciples experienced throughout their experience of walking with Jesus? It seems to be this endless progression of them going, okay, Jesus, you're pretty awesome. We want to trust you and follow you. And then something else will happen and they'll go, okay, we knew you were great, but we didn't know you were that great. We knew you were powerful, but we didn't realize you were that powerful. We knew you weren't just some teacher, healer, but we didn't realize you are the glorious son of God. Have you found that in your discipleship? Does Jesus keep getting bigger to you? Because no matter how big your view of Jesus is, he is here to blow the lid off of that so that you might trust him and entrust yourself to them. What they experience on this mountain, it doesn't get rid of all their confusion, right? They come down the mountain still with questions. They're processing through it going, okay, hold on. We saw Elijah up there. Is that what the scribes were talking about? You just told us not to tell anybody about it, but shouldn't we let them know that we saw Elijah? What's all that about? And then again, Jesus clarifies for them what he said back in chapter 11. No, no, the Elijah that the scribes talked about, that Malachi talked about, who would come to prepare the way for me, he already came. And look what they did to him. They did whatever they pleased. Herod cut off his head to give it as a gift to his stepdaughter. And surely the Son of Man will also suffer at their hands. Like it's crazy. Between the end of chapter 16 and this part right here at the end, at the end of our passage in chapter 7, do you see a way, the way that this glorious image of Jesus' glory is sandwiched between these two passages that starkly talk about his suffering and death at the hands of evil people? That's why this all needs to be held together. There will be glory, but first comes the cross. And they get a glimpse of that glory now so that they and we might trust Jesus that his path, though not easy, is the path to true life. What I want to do now is let's just take a few minutes to walk through some of the particular details of this story. Look with me again back at uh, verse 1 of chapter 17. Notice there's these three guys, Peter, James, and John. We see throughout the Gospels a couple of different instances where Jesus grabs these three guys. They serve as something of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. And each of them will play a pivotal role in the foundation of the church. We talked about that with Peter last time. James, in some ways, his foundational role, he's the first one to follow Jesus on the path through death. He's the first of the disciples to be executed for his faith. 
John, the last surviving disciple, who's given that revelation that we have in the, in the, the book of Revelation. But again, they, they are together with Jesus on this high mountain. But he makes that point where he says they went up the mountain and they were just by themselves. It was just the four of them. Just like a normal day taking a hike with Jesus. And they get up to the top of this mountain and everything changes. Look again, verse 2. Jesus was transfigured. The word is literally transformed. The Greek word is metamorpho, meaning it's the word from which we get our word metamorphosis. He is transformed. He is changed. It's not just that somehow he kind of peels back and shows the glory that, that was just there under the surface all the time. I don't know. I remember when I was like in like junior high and high school, there was this kind of cheesy show called Touched by an Angel. You guys remember that one at all? I remember there was like these characters that were supposed to be angels and they'd be like normal people going through life and everything. And then there would be that moment at the end of every episode where the light would con them on overhead and they would glow. By the way, I've been an angel this whole time, right? Like, I don't know why I kept flashing back to those scenes as I was studying this passage going, that's not what this was like. That's not what this was like. I don't think that this is somehow like this sense of Jesus was like Superman where he's got a super suit under his Clark Kent suit on all the time and when needed, he'll just pull it back and go save the day. That word transformed there, it's actually stated in the passive voice. This wasn't something Jesus did to himself. This is something that happened to him. He was transformed by God before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. He became brilliantly, blindingly glorious. And if that wasn't enough, suddenly there's not just the four of them on the mountain. There's two more people there. Look, verse 3. There's this word I put in bold there. Behold. Behold. Whenever you see behold in the Bible... It is a clue to you as the reader that what the writer is trying to do is help you envision yourself in that moment. See yourself in this moment. Behold, watch, look, pay attention to. Imagine what it would have been like to be there. Behold, suddenly there appeared to them, to Peter, James, and John, Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Here's the question that I've wondered about for a long time. How'd they recognize him? How'd they recognize Moses and Elijah, right? Like, because Moses and Elijah lived centuries before had Moses even maybe as much as 12 to 1400 years before this time. How would they have known what they looked like? Was Elijah, like, was he, did he have the camel hair coat? Was he eating the locusts and honey kind of sandwich that he liked or something like that? Perhaps, maybe most likely, they used their names in their conversation. As Jesus and Moses and Elijah are talking, maybe they called each other by name. And that's how Peter and James and John realized it. But it says they were talking together. I love how in Luke's gospel, he gives us a little bit of insight about what they were talking about. In Luke 9, it says this. Again, two men were talking with them, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and spoke about his departure. The word literally is his exodus which he was about to accomplish or fulfill in Jerusalem. Does that ring a bell at all? The idea of Moses being there and conversation about an exodus. I love that. Isn't that cool? They're not just saying, oh yeah, Jesus is going to leave and go somewhere else from Jerusalem. They're saying, no, he is going to accomplish, fulfill an exodus. When Moses led the exodus from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt... He brought the people with him into a new reality, a new covenant relationship with God. And in many ways, what Moses and Elijah and Jesus are talking about is that an even greater exodus is about to take place. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus would lead all who trust in him out of slavery to even bigger enemies than evil world rulers. Satan and sin and death into a new relationship with God. That's amazing, isn't it? Not only is Moses there, Elijah's there too. Like Moses, he was another prominent prophet from Israel's history. We even see again from that passage at the end that Elijah serves as kind of the type, the model for John the Baptist's role of preparing the way for Jesus. 
So again, we see the fact that these two guys are there with Jesus on this mountain. We're clearly supposed to see Jesus as a continuation of that story. He is in the line of Moses and Elijah as those who speak on behalf of God and lead God's people. That's who Jesus is. Another really interesting similarity, if you're familiar with the stories of Moses and Elijah, they both had encounters where God revealed himself to them on mountains. On Mount Sinai, both Moses and Elijah was that same mountain down in the Sinai Peninsula. They're on a different mountain now, but both of these guys are there. And this signals to Peter and James and John that, that what they're having is an experience somewhere on the level to what Moses experienced at the burning bush. Or later on when he went to the top of Mount Sinai, like starting in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, when the people came out of slavery in Egypt. Or what Elijah experienced when he fled from Jezebel and he went down to Mount Sinai and the Lord appeared to him in that still small voice to direct him what to do. Peter and James and John are experiencing something like that. And again, the fact that Jesus is there with them says at the very least, he is another prophet on the level of a Moses or an Elijah. And that at least seems to be the initial thought that Peter has. Look at verse 4. When he says, okay, it's, it's, oh, sorry, I missed that one. Here we go. It's good for us to be here. Let's make tents. <laughs> Let's not just have a camp out. I think, again, he's saying, I want to make three tents for each of you. I love um, one of the commentators. He said, what, what Peter is doing here in his really lovable way, he's like, I don't want to just be a spectator. Is there anything I can do? Can I get involved? Can I serve y'all in any way? You are three honored guests, and we're just out on the middle of an exposed mountaintop. Can I make you more comfortable? I think the fact that me and James and John are here, and there's three of you, maybe we can serve you and let you linger here for a while. The fact that he wants to make three separate shelters may indicate that, again, from Peter's at least initial thought, oh, these are three equally honorable guests, and so I want to honor them in equal ways. But any notion that Jesus is on the same level of Moses and Elijah gets blown out of the water by what happens next, right? Watch this. I love this. Verse 5. He was still speaking. When behold, there's that word again, see yourself in the story. Imagine what this would have been like. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, this one isn't in the ESV. I don't know why they left it out. It's right there in Greek. Behold, a voice spoke to them from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. A bright cloud overshadowed them. What was that about? What did that signify for them? doesn't just mean, oh, a little cloud cover. Oh, this is nice. Like, defer the sunlight a little bit. This wasn't just any cloud. If you're familiar with the story of Israel, you know oftentimes, particularly in the book of Exodus, the presence of God is symbolized through a cloud. That pillar of cloud by day and fire by night that was God's presence leading the people of Israel through the wilderness. When they build the tabernacle, that, that temporary tent where God's presence would be, the way that they knew that God had taken up residence in the tabernacle was when the cloud of his presence filled the tabernacle with such glory that Moses could not go inside. So these three young Jewish men, when all of a sudden in the midst of this glorious scene, this cloud envelops them, they know exactly what's going on, and they hit the deck. This is the presence of God. They are in the cloud of God's presence. Now again, remember what we looked at a little bit ago from Daniel 7. This vision of one like the Son of Man who comes with the cloud of heaven into God's presence. Same idea here. Jesus said they catch a glimpse of it. Do you see how they're catching a glimpse of that here on this mountain? The Son of Man in the cloud of God's presence brought into God's presence and they're in the midst of it too. And then, gosh, this is amazing. They hear a voice out of that cloud. God himself, the God of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he spoke to them. He spoke to them. They got to hear the voice of God. On the one hand, because we know the stories, or some of us know the stories of Moses and Elijah, it makes sense that God would speak to them, right? They are these exalted prophets. 
Not at the beginning. They weren't so different than Peter and James and John, just three working class fishermen from Galilee. Why did they get this incredible experience of the glory of God? Simply because one day Jesus walked up to them while they were mending their nets and he said, come with me. Come follow me. I want to train you as my apprentices, my disciples, to be fishers of men. And because they left those nets and boats and business and livelihood behind to reorient their lives to follow Jesus, look at where they are now. How gracious of God to give this experience to these three men. I don't know what they expected following Jesus would be like, but I bet you they didn't have anything like this on their minds. Here we are in the cloud of God's presence with God himself speaking to us. And look what God says to them again. This is my beloved son. I want to tell you about Jesus. I want to tell you about my son. I love him. I delight in him. The father repeats the same words that he said at Jesus' baptism back in Matthew 3. Do you notice that? With one really important addition. There is this command, this three-word command at the end of it. Listen to him. This is my son. I love him. I delight in him. And I am calling you to listen to him. Now again, we know from the book of Matthew that when we hear this word listen, it doesn't just mean, oh yeah, I heard the words that he said. But again, like the way that Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mountain, chapter 7, he said, therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, puts them into practice, obeys, follows, redirects their lives to be a part of what I'm doing, that's the wise person who builds their life on the rock. This command, I would say, combined with Moses' appearance on the scene, means that most likely God's command is connected to something that Moses himself said. I skipped over this a second, but look at this with me. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses himself made this prophetic promise that someday in the future, God would send his people, raise up another prophet like him, another prophet like Moses, and he told the people, you got to listen to him. When he comes, you got to listen to him. Do you see the echo of that in the Father's own words here? Moses is on the scene. That's already in the disciples' frame of reference based on what they've seen in the, in the series. As a matter of fact, um, earlier in chapter 16, when Jesus asked, hey, who do people say that I am? And one of the things they say is, oh, they say you're the prophet. What does the prophet mean? Well, that was a shorthand way of referring to this very promise from Deuteronomy 18. They say, you're the prophet like Moses that God promised to send. And here is God the Father saying, exactly right. He is the prophet that you are to listen to. But he is not just another prophet. He is my son. I love him. I love the way that Hebrews 3 puts it. It says this, Moses, comparing Moses and Jesus. It says, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. But Jesus Christ is faithful over all God's house as a son. He is in line. He is in the line of that story of Moses and Elijah. But he is far greater than they ever were or could be. Because Jesus is the son of God. Listen to him. On the one hand, again, I think this command to listen to Jesus, we can take it in totality for everything that Jesus said, right? I mean, we see that in the Great Commission. To make disciples means baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe, to pay attention to and practice and pass on all that I've commanded. We are to listen and obey all that Jesus has said. But I think especially, I think that this command given by God the Father to listen to Jesus applies even more especially to everything that they just heard from Jesus a few days before. Listen to my son when he says that the path of Messiah is one of suffering and death and resurrection. 
listen to my son when he says that if anyone would come after him, they need to be ready to follow that same path. Again, in the midst of their confusion, God in his kindness says, let me show you the glory of my son so that you understand he is telling you the truth. The hard path of Jesus through suffering to glory is the only path that leads to life. I've shown you a glimpse of that glory right now in this scene. Not only of my son's glory, I've enveloped you in my glory. I've let you hear my voice so that you know that Jesus is who you think he is. He is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. But he is so much greater than you think he is. So as hard as it is to understand, he is telling you the truth. Listen to him. I think that brings me to maybe the first point of application I want to make with you guys. I think one of the points we're to learn from a story like the transfiguration is this. Knowing who is more important than knowing why. Do you see what I mean by that? Do you ever struggle with why questions? Maybe you have a toddler who always asks why. Not the same kind of a thing. But I mean like in your own life. Lord, why is this happening? Why am I going through this? You hear about things going on in the world. Lord, why did that happen? Why didn't you do something or, or do maybe something that I would think you would want to do to address it? And I think, again, the disciples are probably asking all of these questions and more. Lord, why is this the path that Jesus is going to walk? How can it be good for us to do this? How can by losing our lives we find it? Why? Why is this the way? And I think what this story teaches us, again, is that God often addresses our confusion, our doubts, our questions, the things we wonder why. Not by explaining why he does what he does, but by showing us who he is. I mean, on the one hand, Isaiah 55 talks about, God, God says to his people, you, you need to understand this. My ways are higher than yours. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. It's like the distance between the heavens and the earth. So sometimes when you're wondering why I do what I do or I don't do things the way that you would want, what you're really wrestling with is not some gap or flaw in the character of God, but the smallness of your own perspective. If you could see everything that God sees, if you knew and understood everything that God knows, well, gosh, we wouldn't run, worry as much. We wouldn't be as angst-ridden about why things happen the way that they do. I remember reading a book on prayer one time. I think it was by Tim Keller. I could be wrong. I'm going to paraphrase it. But he talked about sometimes the freedom that we have as Christians is to go to God in prayer and pour out our hearts. Lord, this is what's going on here. This is what I want to ask you to do about it. But yet at the same time, what I want to say is if I knew everything that you knew, I might ask for something different. I'm limited by the smallness of my perspective. So even as I've expressed my desires and my requests to you, ultimately, Lord, what I want... I'm asking you to give me the very thing I would know to ask for if I knew everything that you did. Sometimes knowing who God is is more important than knowing why. Maybe you're familiar with the Old Testament story of Job. If you've never read that book before, I highly recommend it. Job goes through intense suffering and hardship and tragedy, and he is in anguish to understand why it's happening. And his friends come and they offer all the, well, maybe it's this and maybe it's that, and it never helps. And he's just, throughout the book, he's going, I wish I could just talk to God. I wish he would just talk with me and explain. I wish I could plead my case with him. I wish he could explain it, right? And again, in the kindness of God, God says, okay, if you want to talk, let's talk. And he appears to Job in a terrifying whirlwind and begins to speak to Job. But you know what he never talks about? He never talks about why Job experienced what he experienced. He begins to just basically skim the solar system and the natural world with all the things that God created and understands and controls that Job never worried about because he never even thought to ask about it. 
And he says, do you see how big I am? Do you see how great I am? I am God. I am the great I am, as we just sang. At the end of the book of Job, there's this amazing scene where you just see Job sitting and quiet. And he says to God, I had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I repent. In other words, that's enough for me. I'm not as anxious to understand why because now I understand who you are. And I can trust you with the why questions I have. Maybe that's something you need to hear this morning. You're wrestling with a hardship, a tragedy, a difficulty, or maybe something you know. There's a difficult choice you're going to have to make that's going to make your life more difficult, but you know it's what the Lord wants you to do. And you're going, why, Lord, is there another way? It's not wrong to ask why, but what I would ask you is this. Don't just ask why. Ask God to show you who he is. Lord, would you help me to see who you are so I trust you with the whys? Verse 6, they're coming back down the mountain. They've still got questions. They're wrestling with all of it. But look at verse 9. Jesus again says to them, okay, I know that was crazy, and we'll talk about it as we come down the mountain, but once we get back to the rest of the disciples, don't tell anybody. Keep it to yourself. Just like he did earlier in chapter 16. Yes, I am the Christ, but don't tell anybody. Here he says, you just saw this glorious picture of my glory. You heard the voice of my Father from heaven speaking to you. Keep it to yourself for now. You see how he gives them a time frame, a time limit. Don't tell anyone yet. When will they be able to tell people about it? After the Son of Man is raised from the dead. They don't even understand what that means yet. They haven't even wrapped their minds around what it means that Jesus will rise from the dead but it does seem that they understood at least enough of what the Father had said to them to say, I think we should listen to Jesus. I think we should probably just keep this to ourselves for now. But the amazing thing, as their understanding grew, as Jesus rose from the dead, they did tell others about what they saw. They did tell others what they saw. That's how Matthew found out about it, right? Matthew wasn't there. He was still off down the mountain dealing with this demon-possessed boy that we'll learn about next week. Luke wasn't there. He wasn't even one of the 12. He kind of hops into the scene somewhere in the book of Acts. How does he find out about it? Mark, in the same way, most likely discipled by Peter himself. In other words, they heard the story from the disciples, put it into their gospel accounts so that we might have it and have it have a similar effect in our lives. A momentary glimpse of Jesus' glory. The moment passed. Don't tell anybody about it now. But they sure told people later, didn't they? John in his gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 14, kind of the big crescendo of chapter 1 as he's talking about this one he calls the Word who was with God at the beginning and who was God and who created everything. In verse 14 he goes, that Word, that truth of God, He became flesh. He became one of us. He dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. I think in many ways, John's saying the whole of Jesus' life was glory, but man, I remember that day on the mountain. I remember what the Father said. That was amazing. I love the way that Peter puts it in 2 Peter 1, verse 16, where again, he's, at this point, Jesus, uh, Peter has learned to take up his cross, deny himself, and follow Jesus. We know between Peter learning to deny himself, first he's going to deny Jesus three times and need to be restored. We see how this encounter on the mountain doesn't forever fix the doubts the disciples have. They're going to continue to stumble their way through learning to follow Jesus just like we do. But by the time we get to Peter as an older man in, first, uh, in Second Peter chapter 1, he goes, I've learned a lot, you guys. But here's the main thing I want you to see. Everything that we've done, the way that we've lived as followers of Jesus, seeking to walk in his footsteps, we didn't make this up. This isn't just some story we heard. We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, that cloud of God's presence, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We've seen his glory. And so we've said, okay, let's come after him. Let's deny ourselves, take up our crosses, follow him. His path really does lead to life. That's the second point. Following Jesus is hard. Don't mistake that for a second. If you came to Jesus because someone said, hey, come to Jesus and he'll take all your problems away. I'm sorry, they lied to you. That's not the truth. Ultimately, all hurts will be healed. Every tear will be wiped away from your eyes. But like it was for Jesus, first comes a hard path of suffering, then comes glory. That doesn't mean we, in some twisted way, seek out suffering, seek opportunities to get beat up for our faith. But it does mean we reset our expectations. Anybody who tells you that following Jesus is the path to health and wealth is lying to you. Anyone who claims they have visions from God and has a word from God for you that ultimately is just about making your life more comfortable and better, be very, very suspicious of that. Jesus himself said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It is a hard road, but it leads to life now and forevermore. And the last thing before we get ready to take communion, I think it bears repeating what the Father said. Jesus is his beloved son. If you want to know what it's like to please God, look to Jesus. God is well pleased with Jesus. And listen to him. Follow him. Entrust yourself to him. That's what it means to be apprentices of Jesus. We are following Jesus on his path, believing that it is the path to true life. If you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, we'd love to talk with you about that. But what we're going to do now, I'm going to ask the band if they would come back up. We're going to finish out. We're going to sing one more song after this. But we're going to celebrate this simple little meal that we call communion. We typically do this on the first Sunday of the month. But I think it was actually really appropriate. It was fun for me as I was contemplating on this passage and then contemplating on communion to see again. Most of the time the disciples walked with Jesus, every other time but this transfiguration, he looked like a normal dude. Then all of a sudden they saw a glimpse of the glory that's to come. The simplicity, the normality of Jesus' normal appearance leads to the glory that would come. And so on that night as he's sitting around with his disciples and he takes that bread and that cup, he institutes something that's super, super simple, right? There's not really anything glamorous, especially once you like seal it up in a little plastic pouch like this. It's even less glamorous. But I think that again, this simple meal is a small taste. Here's the way I put it. It's a small taste of glory that is to come. Jesus said there would come a day when he would meet, eat this meal again with us in the kingdom. And I don't think it's going to look like this. Do you? But I do think that this is a simple, healthy way we remind ourselves of where we're headed. There's not much that's sexy and glamorous and follow, about following Jesus. But it is the path to true life. So let the simplicity of this meal remind you that though it may seem simple and normal now, oh my goodness, I feel like doing Todd's Tigger laugh. <laughs> it's going to be amazing, right? What it looks like. One reminder as we get ready to take this together again, we believe that this simple meal, this bread and cup, is a meal that's meant for believers. It's meant for those who've turned and trusted and followed Jesus. So if you have not yet turned and trusted and followed Jesus, I would ask you, again, Please participate by watching as we take this together. Please don't join in this with us. If you would like to talk about what it means to follow Jesus, after we sing this last song, there's some of us to be up by the prayer, and we would love to talk with you about that. We would even like to talk with you. If you're ready to follow Jesus, before this symbolic act, it seems in the way that Jesus laid it out, there's one that's meant to come first. It's called baptism. 
a way that, an initial way that you identify yourself with Jesus through his death and resurrection and say, my old life's done. I want to follow him now. And if you want to talk about baptism, we'd love to talk about that as well. But after that initial act of baptism, we do this thing regularly as a way to remember the unity that we now share with Jesus and with each other. So if you will, and you've already worked on it, go ahead and open up that first part with the wafer. And let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take eat. This is my body. Let's take that together. Verse 27. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, this new relationship, this new partnership with God, living to relate to him and to put him on display to those around us. My blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is just a taste of a glory that's to come, amen? Let's take this together. Jesus, thank you for the simplicity and the glory that we've seen in your word this morning. With the smallness of our perspective, we have a hard time wrapping our heads around all of that. But that's who you are. You are the simple, humble, meek, gentle savior who said that you came to bring rest and refreshment to our souls. You are the obedient, honorable son who honored your father by the point of obedience, even to death on the cross. And therefore, God, your father exalted you to the highest place. He gave you the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even in the simplicity of this meal, Lord, we get a taste of a glory, a kingdom that is already broken into this world that we participate in now as your people. And yet we long for your kingdom to come. So thank you for this simple meal. We cannot wait until the glorious banquet that you prepared for us, not because we deserve it, but because you desire to share that with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.